else, grab your Bibles. Make your way to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 11 this morning, beginning in verse 37 and working our way to verse 54. <clears throat> if you're one of those who have been keeping tallies of this series that we've been going through where we're taking the Gospels and putting them together, you get this beautiful picture of Jesus' ministry. Uh, you might have noticed that last week we wrapped up in verse 13, and so we're jumping over several different passages and several different events that have happened within this chapter. And the reason we're doing the jump is because in verses 14 through 36, we've already looked at those in some of the other Gospels, particularly in Matthew. Um, though we're trying to take this series and put the Gospels all together as chronologically as possible, um, the Gospels weren't actually written in that sort of manner uh, to be a chronological event. Um, but we're trying to do our best. The Gospel of Luke, many of us know, is written by a man named Luke. He was a disciple of Paul's. He traveled with Paul on his journeys and his mission trips. And he began piecing this particular Gospel together under the guidance of the Holy Spirit by using eyewitness accounts. With that said, it, it isn't out of the question that Jesus taught some lessons numerous times as he was traveling around the nation of Israel. I, I in fact, believe that he did, and I think our passage this morning is going to back that up. Uh, we're going to be reading out of Luke, but you can also find this particular passage in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 23. Um, they're almost word for word, but there are a few differences, and I want to point those out uh, to give us some understanding of why I think Jesus taught similar, if not the same, messages as he traveled. The first one is the setting, or where they took place. In the Gospel of Luke, in verse 37, we're told, while Jesus was speaking, the Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. So our setting here in the Gospel of Luke is at a Pharisee's house, to which we're going to find out there are actually other Pharisees that are there by the titles of lawyers and scribes. If we were to look at the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 23, we would find in that setting Jesus was speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. And so we have two different settings and two uh, different types of listeners or two different types of audiences. Another major difference is Luke account, Luke's account contains six woes, and we'll deal with that word here in a little bit. Matthew's account contains seven woes. When we come to Luke's account, we're nearing the end of Jesus' ministry, but we still have several months before he's going to go to Jerusalem for the final time. But in Matthew's account, Jesus is in his final days or maybe final weeks before he'll go to Jerusalem for the final time to ultimately be crucified. And so we're going to deal with Matthew's account when we get there, but our focus this morning is going to be on Luke's account. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break it up into four different sections. We're first going to look at verses 37 through 41. And then we'll take verse 42 through 44, there's verses 45 through 52, and then we'll wrap up the chapter with verses 53 and 54. And so let's read our first section, verses 37 through 41. And the word of the Lord says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Do not 
Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So we come to this encounter, is really the fruition of what David wrote in the chapter 23 of the Psalms when he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Again, our setting is in a Pharisee's house. The exact city, we can't be certain or where it's taking place, and that's not really the point. And as far as we've seen in this series, when it comes to the Pharisees and the scribes, they're heavily antagonistic towards Jesus. They're opposed to him. And it actually began with the ministry of John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. And so when we come to this chapter and we read, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, we should automatically come to a conclusion there is going to be an agenda set. But Jesus takes control of this little dinner party. There would also be crowds typically in this sort of setting that would gather in the house when teachers would get together and they would be conversing back and forth, but it doesn't seem to be taking place in this particular time. It did back in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus once again was invited by a Pharisee to go and eat with him. So we've been told during Jesus' ministry the Pharisees and scribes have already started the plot to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. And so that would mean this invitation wasn't one extended to Jesus out of respect, but rather trying to advance that plot, which ultimately is what's going to happen when we come to the end of this chapter. We read that he reclined at the table, and that might seem like a weird posture since we typically sit in seats when we gather at the dinner table. But in this particular day and age, tables were lower to the ground. They weren't right on the ground, but they were lower. So people would either recline. So when we read that, we get this image of Jesus. He's either laying on his belly or he's laying on his side being propped up by his arm. And the issue which launches this whole conversation is found in verse 38. It says, The Pharisee was astonished, which can be read as amazed and surprised. He wasn't astonished with Jesus. He was astonished that Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner. Because of the Pharisees' oral traditions and the Jewish customs, the thought would be that Jesus is preparing to put food in his body when his hands are unclean, therefore it would make him unclean, especially when you take into consideration who Jesus hung out with. He typically hung out with the outcasts and those titled sinners, those who were dealing with illnesses or ailments, and he continuously would touch them at times in order for them to be healed. And so... In the Pharisee's mind, we have to get there. He's already thinking this man is filthy. He's dirty. When you think about the people he chooses to hang out with, the people he chooses to talk to, the people he chooses to touch. But notice verse 38. The Pharisee does not say anything to Jesus. Meaning verse 38 is the thought that the Pharisee had in his head. Unfortunately for the Pharisee, Jesus is known to read the minds of men. And so Jesus speaks up in verse 39 through 41, which leads into the six woes found here in Luke. Now Jesus' statement is tied to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 32 through 33, and Leviticus chapter 15, verses 12. 
And I know many of us here have those particular passages of Scripture memorized, but I just want to remind you what they say. Both passages speak about earthenware vessels. And the instructions in Leviticus is that a Jewish individual was to wash these vessels, which would be cups and dishes, or they would have to destroy those vessels, just in case an unclean animal like a lizard happened to crawl through it or on top of it. Because the thought was, if something unclean, an unclean animal had touched the vessel or touched the cup or touched the plate or crawled into it, then that uncleanliness of that animal would be transferred to the individual. Matter of fact, the instructions of Leviticus say that is exactly what would happen. And so in modern day times for us today, it simply say, wash your dishes, which makes sense. That's all God is telling his people, wash your dishes. And what Jesus does here, as this Pharisee has this thought, is he flips the script on the Pharisee about not only washing the cup or the dish, Jesus uses it as a metaphor for the cup and the dish to represent the Pharisee and all of his buddies that are gathered there today. The, the point Jesus is making is the Pharisees, they have taken such care of their outer appearances and how they can look the part and be, appear to be holy, and yet they have done little to nothing to deal with their character or the condition of their heart. And this is why he says, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Both of those terms, greed and wickedness, are used to speak of a life of immorality and to use people and materials as a means of manipulation. That's a pretty bold statement made by Jesus considering who his host is and considering what party is around him, and we already know that they want to kill him. But Jesus doesn't back down. Beginning in verse 40. You fools. What a polite dinner guest. In the Old Testament, which would have been the scriptures that Jesus and these Pharisees and those gathered there today, that on that day, that would have been their Bible. The title of a fool would be considered someone who has rejected the ways of God so that they can live their own destructive and sinful ways. To say someone is a fool means that they are blind to the things of God. And the point is driven home in the lesson about how God made both the inside and the outside of a person and desires both to be clean and pure and holy. Again, Jesus is not talking about dinner utensils anymore. Then in verse 41, Jesus gives the instruction... And the application on how these men can overcome their wickedness and their grief by giving alms. And the giving of alms means to give and take care of the poor or those who are in need. And so just in this one section, there are two things that we can take from it to apply to our life. The first one is, just because we look the part doesn't mean we have the heart. When we read through scriptures, even though God has set up a sacrificial system, he has given commands and he has given instructions on how we are to live our life, we have to keep in mind God is ultimately after our heart. He's after our devotion. He's after our worship. He's after our love. 
And so even though we find commandments and instructions in the Old Testament, what we also find in the Old Testament is several times God has to send prophets to his people because they're doing all the right things, but they were only going through the motions and doing them. There wasn't any worship. There wasn't any repentance. There wasn't any devotion. There wasn't any love. They were simply doing what they thought should be done and were playing the part. And this is what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. The second thing we can take from this first section is to combat greed, we must be givers. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were like politicians in our day. They lobbied for power. They lived lavish lives, and they ran around with the wealthy crowd. They ultimately looked down on the people that they were commanded to lead and supposed to be leading. They had all this wealth, and yet they were not helping the people around them who were in desperate need. I'm not saying it's bad for us to have things or have stuff. If you came over to our house, you would see that we have stuff. There's things in our garage and tubs and boxes we haven't opened since we moved here over seven years ago. There's four people who live in our house, if you don't count the dogs. We have three TVs. I have things in my closet I haven't worn in years. I bring that up because I think if we all honestly did an honest inventory of what God has given us, we would realize that we are overly blessed by God. So when I say that to combat greed, we should be givers, it means we shouldn't cringe at the idea. Oh, the preacher's talking about money again. I'm not talking about money. Maybe your giving is giving of your time giving to the things that are just sitting around your house you don't use to people who would actually enjoy them, to give to those in need. As Jesus makes the comment about the Pharisees' unclean hearts, he moves on to the first of three woes. Look at me in verse 42 through 44. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. There's six woes. These are the first three, obviously. And here is the word woe. Woe means it is a cry for God's judgment in the light of an action that deserves a divine response. So Jesus is not being rude here. He's trying to wake these men up. He's trying to wake them up spiritually to almost revive their heart. The word woe could be read as what sorrow awaits or judgment is coming. But let's admit it's more fun to say woe. Just try it. Woe. The first woe reiterates our last point in being generous givers to those in need. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22, we are told, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And so when Jesus brings up the tithe here in verse 42, he isn't condemning these men for tithing. The judgment 
The woe part is they have neglected, which means they bypassed or ignored or disregarded completely justice and the love of God. The point Jesus is making is the Pharisees were neglecting the more important acts of faith while keeping to the less important. In the book of Micah, in chapter 6, verse 8, we hear these words that the Lord speaks through the prophet. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now that word justice there in Micah means to live and act righteously or according to God's word and in his will. The love kindness can also be read as mercy. And the understanding is because we have been given so much mercy by a holy God, we should be merciful type of people, that we give mercy to others. Now, to walk humbly with God means that we aren't leading, but we're allowing God to, follow, to lead us so we can follow him, and we can follow him and trust him because we know that he loves us. And our following him, which means living his word or obeying his commandments, the Bible says that reveals that we actually do love him. So Jesus is telling these men, look, guys, tithing is a good thing. He's, he's not abolishing the tithe. The word tithe means 10%. So he's saying, look, you're tithing. That's a good thing. But we shouldn't do the little things while ignoring the more important things. And so this goes back to a previous teaching that Jesus had in Luke chapter 10, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, and all of your strength, and all of your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, Do this, and you will live. So the point is, is that we can do all the right things, but we can forget the important things. The second woe is tied to the Pharisees' desire for prestige. We can desire prestige and be petty. The word petty means to be narrow-minded, and that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing and how they were living. They wanted people that they were to be ministering to to look at them as they were the most important person on the planet. When they arrived at the synagogue, they expected to sit in the best seat in the house, the place where everyone would say, that person is important. They wanted all eyes on them. When they walked through the streets, there was an expectation. When people saw them coming, they would stop. Look at you. It's so good to see you. And they would do these lavish greetings. And the Pharisees expected. Matter of fact, history says that if they weren't greeted in such a way, they'd actually stop and stare at the people until they gave them this awesome greeting in public. They walk around in their lavish robes and their hats, wanting the people to be in awe of them. And I think we can see the problem with that. Because we're only supposed to be all in awe of God. Don't get me wrong, I, I think it's great to receive compliments. I think we should be people who give compliments when people do good jobs. I think we should give them pats on the backs. and uh, I think we should be grateful people. But it isn't about us. It's not about Pastor Mike. It's not about the worship team. It's about he who saved us from our sins and claims us now as his own. 
So all praise and glory and honor go to him. The third woe Jesus gives, verse 44, just right to the point. Jesus looks at these men, these men who felt they were just so prestigious. And he looks at them and says, you are like unmarked graves. We might read that and go, well, I don't know, that doesn't seem as harsh as what he said already. But when we use the scriptures, we understand what Jesus is saying. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, it says, Whoever in the open field touches someone who is killed with a sword, or who died naturally, or touches a human bone or a grave, shall be unclean for seven days. So Jesus' statement about them being unmarked graves can be unpacked like this. The Pharisees are hidden graves which people are following and touching, and as a result of that, they are making the people ceremonially unclean. So that's a pretty big statement that he is laying out to these religious, prestigious individuals. And it ties back to where this whole conversation began about a dirty dish. The point for us is we are either leading people to life or to death. We're either leading people to God or we're pushing them away. We're either inviting people to church or we're avoiding avoiding the the conversation altogether. We're either living for God or we're living opposed to God. This brings us to our third section, beginning in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, Saying these things, you insult us also. Duh. And he, Jesus, said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. And you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself. And you hindered those who were entering. So as Jesus is laying down the truth to these Pharisees, a lawyer decides this is a good time to enter into this conversation. This is my opportunity to speak up. And let's just know the company that Jesus is keeping in this moment who are gathered at this dinner table. In verse 53, we're also told that scribes were there. And they began following Jesus. We'll get to that here in a second. Now, a lawyer would not be like a lawyer today. A lawyer in Jesus' day would have also been a Pharisee, and they would have been deemed an expert on the law of God, or what we refer to as the Old Testament. The Pharisees, they interpreted the law for the people. The lawyers were the experts on the law for the people. And the scribes were the teachers of the law. 
So you got some pretty qualified Jewish individuals who knew the word of God. Now, Jewish lawyers were held in such high esteem within this society because they would be considered masters of the word of God. And this lawyer, being a Pharisee, again, he decides to pipe up into this conversation. He begins with a title of respect. He calls Jesus teacher. But then he goes on to let Jesus know that, you know, I feel a little insulted about what you've been saying, which means he understood what Jesus was saying. And Jesus must have been a Tom Petty fan because he's not going to back down. No, I won't. All right, never mind. Okay. So Jesus doesn't back down. He redirects his attention. He was, he was talking specifically to the Pharisee group. Now he redirects his attention to the lawyer and his buddies. And I'm thinking, if I was one of the lawyer's buddies, I would be holding his arm and say, don't say a word. Just be quiet. But it's too late. The first woe Jesus is telling this prestigious master of the law is that they were crushing the people that they were called to lead because they were placing demands too hard for the people to carry. And then he goes on to say that these burdens that they're loading upon the people, that they don't even keep them themselves. And even worse, they don't even try to help the people whom they're trying to lead. That phrase, one of your fingers, could literally be read that you don't even lift one finger to help the people. And what we can learn is legalism is not spirituality. Legalism is a list of rules. You do this, you don't do that. There are five rules I knew growing up in traditional Baptist churches. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't cuss, you don't dance, and you don't play cards. Anybody heard those rules before? Yeah. And and if you did, you must not really love Jesus. Hmm, you sure you're saved? We've got rules here, buddy. And if you break them, well, we should question your salvation, your dedication, your commitment. Now, don't mishear me. There are things that God lays out in his word which he says we should do and things that we shouldn't do, but then he reminds us it's for your benefit. It's for your blessing. It's so you don't go down the wrong way. So you don't have to deal with certain hurts and pains that can come in life. Now, the Pharisees and the lawyers took God's commandments. How many commandments were there? Ten. Ten commandments. So the Pharisees and the lawyers took God's ten commandments and exploded them to 613 And they expected the people to follow them and to live by them. And it got so bad that the people that they were called to lead didn't know if they were doing it right. Did I just sin? Did I just step out of line? And so the people were just so confused, and they'd come to the temple where they would buy animals so they could sacrifice. Because you didn't want to bring an animal that you were going to have for a sacrifice from a long journey. And so you would buy it at the temple. Well, the Pharisees set up this thing, which is why Jesus flipped some tables eventually. That you could buy animals for sacrifice outside the temple, because there would be marketplaces out there. 
but we're going to inspect them. And most of the time, they would deem the animals bought outside the temple as unpure and unworthy of the sacrifice. Good news is, guys, the Pharisees would say, we've got a whole bunch of animals inside the temple that we've already inspected and we know are worthy. And so you can just buy them. And guess who got the money? The Pharisees. And so what Jesus is laying out is that we can't put laws and restrictions on people to get to God. And if you have ever gotten to a place where you see another believer, another brother or sister in Christ, doing something that you don't agree with, or maybe you have a personal conviction about, and your response is, well, if they're doing that, they must not really love Jesus. What that means is in your heart, you have placed an expectation and a law, a man-made law, on somebody else. We don't clean up our act before we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and let Jesus clean us up. The second woe is the longest. And it ties in the past and the present and the future. The woe is, again, another action of the lawyers in that they build tombs for the prophets whom their ancestors killed. So when you read fathers, it's typically referring to ancestors. Now, the word build there in the Greek can also mean the word repair. And the word tomb in the Greek can also be read as monuments. And the whole point is, by doing this, they are actually celebrating and approving the actions of their ancestors and killing the prophets. Now, in the Jewish community, it was a sign of respect to wash gravestones and monuments and tombs. It was a sign of respect to the family member or friend that had passed away. Kind of like when we go to a cemetery today and we may put flowers on the tomb. We're showing respect. But Jesus is telling these men by rebuilding and repairing these tombs or these monuments of the prophets who are men, messengers of God, whom their ancestors killed and murdered, they are actually showing disrespect towards God because they are agreeing with the actions of their ancestors. The wisdom of God there in verse 49 is referring to the words of the prophets who were given those words from God to deliver to the people. Now, the future aspect of this is Jesus also mentions apostles, which his disciples would become apostles, and that they are also going to be persecuted, and they are also going to be murdered, which takes place in the book of Acts and beyond. Now, the meaning of the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah there in verse 51 needs to be understood in the context of the Jewish Bible, what we consider the Old Testament. So the Jewish Bible starts like our Bible does. It starts with the book of Genesis. But the Jewish Bible ends with the book of Zechariah. And so what Jesus is saying is that your entire history is filled with blood. And he brings up Cain, or brings up Abel, because he's pointing out that you actually have the heart of Cain. You have murderous intentions upon your heart, and you're living opposed to God. He then tells them that not only will you be held accountable for your murderous intentions and the celebration of murdering of God's messengers, but those who follow your teaching. And follow your example are going to be held accountable. And that will come to fruition in Jesus' crucifixion and into the book of Acts. And the point we can take is, 
Everyone will be judged by their actions, words, and deeds. The final woe comes in verse 52. It mentions something called the key of knowledge. The key of knowledge is not only referring to what we refer as the Old Testament, but it's referring to the gospel or the message of Jesus Christ. And the implication is these men who consider themselves experts, masters of the Old Testament, since they're such masters, they should be able to understand who Jesus is because of their knowledge of the Old Testament, as many prophecies pointed to him. Yet they don't. And not only do they not understand it, but they're leading people away from the truth. And so instead of opening a door to the kingdom of God, they are putting up a wall or a barricade so that people cannot come to a place of faith and believing in Jesus Christ. And so this leads us to have to ask this question. Where are we leading people? Going back to an earlier point, are we leading them to God or are we pushing them away from God? Now, after Jesus has addressed the lawyers, he's addressed the Pharisees, he's addressed all those who are gathered in that day, he said what he has needed to say, and it's time to go. Look in verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, laying, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So the dinner party's over. I do not picture Jesus standing up and saying, may I please be excused. I believe these men wanted him to go. He has insulted them. He's hurt their feelings. They have understood what he is saying, but they have not been awakened to the spiritual truth. I imagine they were like, there's the door. But notice as he's leaving, there's Pharisees and scribes who just can't seem to keep themselves away. And so they start following him. That word press, there in verse 53, it carries the meaning and the image, I'm sorry, it carries the meaning of being opposed. They pressed him. The word hostile is they did it hard. They were fierce about this. We're going to get the last word, Jesus. We're going to put you in your place. So these men are following Jesus, but they're not following him in a good way. They're provoking him, which carries the meaning of interrogating him. They're cross-examining him. They're asking him questions. And the purpose of it is in 54, to catch him in something he might say. And the word catch carries the meaning and the image of being on the hunt. They wanted to trap him. And so the image in that, those two verses that we get is now these religious leaders are the hunters and Jesus is their prey. They're fed up with this guy. Who do you think you are? And so even though Jesus seemed to come across as this hostile guest at the dinner party, everything he has said, particularly to the lawyers, has now come true. It has now come to fruition. They are now hunting a man of God. And so what we can take from just these two verses is not everyone who hears the word of of Jesus will accept Jesus. Jesus speaks truth. The Bible is absolute truth. 
Meaning it's true for everyone, everywhere, at all time. Absolute. And some people are not going to want to deal with the truth that the Bible lays out found in God's word. Because it's going to mean that their life is not right with God. So when we come into the presence of a holy God, when we open up his word and we hear the words of of Jesus, which we refer to as the gospel, it all begins with this understanding, I'm a sinner. My life is not all good. My life is not right. And then it is worse. Because the Bible reveals... We can't fix our sin problem. We've got a problem we cannot fix. And that's why we get to the gospel. Because that's why God sent his only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life according to the word of God. He never sinned. And he did that so he could take our sin problem and call it his own. And he did. And he died on the cross, taking the full wrath of God upon him. Then they placed him in a tomb. That's why it's the gospel. He walked out. He walked out three days later to show he has the power over death, which is what sin causes. The wages of sin is death. And he has the authority to forgive us our sins. He has authority to gift us with eternal life in heaven so we will no longer be separated from God but we will be with him forever and God promises he'll send his spirit to live inside of us. If you're here this morning and you're hearing this and this is something you know you have yet to accept no one can accept it for you. It has to be a personal decision. And you're hearing like I have yet to make that commitment. I've heard the words of Jesus, and now God is extending the invitation to accept the words of Jesus and to accept eternal life and find forgiveness for your sins. And God has made it so easy but so important. We admit to God that we are a sinner. We mess up. We fall short. But then we tell God, I believe you sent your son to die for my sins, and he did, and he rose again, that I might find forgiveness and be saved. The Bible says there's one more step. You must confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says when we do that, we will be saved. It's so simple, but so important. If you're here and you aren't sure or you know for certain you have yet to accept God's gift, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to come down. You just have to say, Pastor Mike, I need to be forgiven, and I want eternal life. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. The Bible says when one person repents and comes back to the Lord, the heavens erupt. And I promise you there won't be a believer in this room who will not celebrate with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for this place where we can gather in your name and the promise that we are in your presence and you are in ours. Thank you for the gift forgiveness and eternal life and father i pray if someone here needs to accept that gift that today would be the day of their salvation continue to be glorified your will and kingdom continue to be done we praise in the name of jesus